I just said to Dan as he was coming off the stage, man, I got to preach now. I think I was just crying more in those two songs. Enough for, enough for one day, for sure. <laughs> well, my name's Jason. We're excited that you're here today. We may be seeing a few more friends sneaking in over the next few minutes. And like Pastor Rick said, welcome them in. Welcome them into worship with us today. We're in this series uh, called We Are. And when you hear someone yell, We Are, probably most of you want to say... Penn State, right? We made that joke the first week of the series that the title of this series that we're in uh, is the same chant that rallies us as Penn State fans, and I guess we won't have to wait too much longer. Next Saturday, I think, is the first game. We play Nobody State University or somebody like that so that we can win 65-7 in week one and feel really good about ourselves. But uh, in Daybreak's case, when we say we are, we are is representative of who we are as a church, that we're part of something bigger and more significant than us individually, that we're part of, of, of a Jesus movement, a movement of Jesus followers filled with God's Spirit on a mission to help others discover and deepen a life-changing journey with Jesus, and there's no greater cause on earth than that. And on that mission, we have four defining core values that describe some of the most important ways that we carry out that mission. Things that we believe about ourselves, about the ways that God has called us to act as we live out that mission. And so based on those core values, who are we? Well, as we've been going through this series, we've said, number one, we are faith-filled followers. About daybreak, we say leaps of faith are taken here, and we talked about that core value two weeks ago. And we would also say that we are people developers, that people are developed here. And we talked about that core value last Sunday. And today we're going to be talking uh, about something that uh, Sister Sledge was really trying to teach us all those years ago. Maybe you'll recognize it. How many of you danced to this song decades ago? Yeah, several of you, yeah. I'll, I'll spare you the rest of the song, but uh, so I don't know about the sisters part for me. I mean, some of you are sisters to each other, and that's good. And though, although I'm not your sister, uh, sometimes I've been told I sing like a sister, so there's that. But uh, no, we are family. That's what we're talking about today. Another way that we say that is that relationships are vital here. But what does it mean that we are family? Why are we family? After all, the song we just sang before the message said that we are the sons and the daughters of God, that we are his children. Well, a man named John, who was one of Jesus's closest friends, he thought this was an important enough concept that he introduced his entire account of Jesus' life and ministry by helping us understand what it means that we are God's family. This is what he says about those of us who have received Jesus into our hearts as the leader of our lives in John 1, 12 to 13. He says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. And this verse is a great summation of the whole gospel of John. John tells us that Jesus, the Son of God, he came so that we also could become God's children. And so all of the stories that follow in John's account of Jesus' life point to that, that Jesus is the Son of God and that we are part of God's family. And that is your first blank today, that we are God's family. 
When we believe in who Jesus is and what he did for us, when we receive his forgiveness, we become part of God's family. It's like Jesus is signing and sealing our adoption papers and says, you are now officially a member of God's family. Now, many of you experienced a family growing up that was much less than perfect. Maybe you ran away from that family Maybe even today you're still processing through and trying to find healing from some of the things that happened when you grew up in that family. Others of you had a pretty good family growing up. You wouldn't say that it was perfect, but they cared for you. They cared for each other. They encouraged you. You know, we've all got different pictures of what it means to be a family. I think of my own family, my own childhood, my memories of growing up, and there were some really good things and some not as good things, right? I have things that shaped who I became or uh, things that uh, kind of became the norm for me that then when you step outside of your immediate family and you look at everyone else, you say, oh, I, I thought that was normal. That's, that's not normal, right? Maybe you guys have had some of those experiences too. I remember good times where I had to leave the dinner table so as to not do a spit take with the food or drink in my mouth um, because I was laughing so hard. And oftentimes that maybe had to do with bathroom humor. I'm not sure how many of you grew up in bathroom humor houses as well, but uh, I have good memories of having to leave the table so I don't share my dinner on someone else's face. Um, but at the same time, when that humor was, was so uh, there, so uh, regular, uh, I also remember negative emotion not really being expressed very much, and that when it was, it was expressed more as these outbursts of anger. Uh, and so I came to see emotion, especially negative emotion, as something that was to be avoided instead of felt. I remember at times being told by my parents that they were proud of me for an accomplishment. But I also remember times where uh, maybe I messed up, where I felt like love wouldn't be freely given unless it was earned through good performance or behavior. I remember having great models of what it looked like to work hard and to be responsible, but also at times feeling like me doing those things was the only thing that made me valuable. You know, we all had a mix of things that we felt and learned from our families of origin. But what is it about being part of God's family that is different? Well, for starters, God's family is not centered around having to look good. And amen that it's not. (laughs) It's not centered on performance. It's not centered on being someone that you're not just so that you can please others. You've probably heard this said before, and every time I hear this, in some ways it's hard for me to wrap my mind around this, but there's literally nothing that you could do that would make God love you more, and there's absolutely nothing you could do that could make God love you any less. God's love is constant, it's consistent, and it's unconditional. And so when you're part of God's family, the one thing that you can always count on is God's unfailing love. We sang about that earlier, right? Is never-ending, overwhelming, at times even reckless love for us. And because his love is given so freely and so generously to us, God wants it to flow through us to others. He wants us to learn to exhibit that same kind of love. 1 Corinthians 13 is often referred to as the love chapter, and it says that without love, we are nothing. Without love, we gain nothing. Without love, we have nothing. That love is the greatest characteristic of a follower of Christ. And so we are God's family, but we must be God's family centered on God's love. And that's your next blank this morning. That we are God's family centered on God's love. 
It's what we believe Jesus calls us to be, and he digs into that in the two verses uh, that we're going to focus on today from John chapter 13. You might recognize these verses if you've been coming to Daybreak for a little while because they were our theme verses in our series this past fall. But a little bit of context for when and in what situation Jesus speaks these words in John 13. So here the the disciples have gathered in what's kind of commonly known as the Last Supper. It's basically the last time the disciples are going to be together to share a meal for Jesus to, to impart wisdom before he's about to be crucified. And the whole thing starts by Jesus not necessarily expressing love with his mouth, but showing it with his actions. See, as they sat down to eat dinner, in those days they were kind of leaning on pillows on the floor, uh, eating off of, you know, shorter tables, whereas today we're sitting on these high chairs and these high tables. They didn't have that. And so instead of being kind of sitting up all prim and proper, everyone's kind of reclining and each person's feet is kind of in the face of the next person over. And so while you're eating your dinner, you're also catching a whiff of your neighbor's feet, which, you know, doesn't make the food quite as appetizing. And so Jesus, being the servant that he was, realized that there was no servant in the household coming around to wash the disciples' feet. And so he says, guess what? I'm going to do it. I'm going to show my brothers, I'm going to show these apostles what sacrificial love looks like. It's humble. And then after predicting who would betray him and who would deny him, he said this in verse 33. He said, my children, which it kind of makes me giggle that Jesus was able to call all of these grown men his children and that they accepted it. They listened to him. (laughs) He said, my children, I will only be with you a little bit longer. He says, this is, kind of the, this is kind of the last talk. This is what I want you to hear. This is what I want you to walk away with and understand when I leave, this is what I need you to do. He says something then in verse 34 that only John, out of all of the gospel writers, records in his gospel. Verse 34 says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And so he models it first, and then he uses the words and says, love one another as I have loved you. I don't know if you ever think about why the different gospel writers share things slightly differently. I've been thinking about that lately, like how come this is only in one of the books, and this thing is in a few of the books, and they each kind of share it a little bit differently. If you think about when you tell a story versus maybe when your spouse or when your friend tells a story, it probably comes across a little bit differently, right? There's some things that you highlight that they don't highlight and vice versa. I was thinking uh, about the difference between when I tell a story and when Pastor Rick tells a story. So when I tell a story, it's probably going to be short. It's probably going to be like just the facts. uh, And I'm also very concerned that it is accurate. Now, when Pastor Rick tells a story, it's going to be a little bit longer. He wants to take you on a journey. He's so excited about what he's sharing, and he wants you to share in that excitement too. And so there might be a little bit of an exaggeration sometimes when it comes to numbers. And he's not trying to deceive you. It's just he's excited, and he wants you to understand how exciting this story is that he's sharing, right? You know, I think we tell stories differently because we have different personality types, and we also have different experiences that lead us up to that moment where we're sharing that story. Our perspectives, they get filtered through the context of what we've already experienced. 
You can almost tell, I think, when you read each of the different Gospels, what each of the writers' personality types were. Earlier this week in my um, daily devotions, I was reading uh, Luke chapter 1, and I was kind of taken back. Luke basically says that uh, he, he starts his book introducing, and he says, I've carefully investigated everything from the beginning of Jesus' story, and based on accounts from eyewitnesses, I wanted to write an orderly account of the story. I'm pretty sure Luke is my personality type. You know, they talk about having spirit animals. I think Luke is my spirit gospel writer. (laughs) He's orderly, and he's analytical, and and he's a researcher. For those of you familiar with the disc personality type, I'm pretty sure Luke was a C. Maybe some of you in the room are also wired that way. But then we go back to John here, and we have to ask the question, why was John the only one who shared these specific words from Jesus? To me, it says that these words were burned into John's heart. There's something about them that struck a chord with him and made them memorable. And I have to wonder if maybe for John, it's because of his family experience, his upbringing, that these words were particularly impactful to him. So what do we know about John's family? Well, in the book of Mark, another one of the Gospels, pretty early in their relationship with Jesus, John and his brother James were referred to by Jesus as the sons of thunder. Now, why would Jesus call them the sons of thunder? (laughs) It doesn't specifically tell us why, but it does say in that passage that they were sons of a man named Zebedee. And so that makes me wonder, was Zebedee thunder? Was Mrs. Zebedee the one who was referred to as thunder? You know, when I think of someone earning the nickname Thunder, I think of loud. I think of someone who's driven, um, a take-charge kind of person, a self-promoting kind of person. And we get some proof that this might have been part of their family culture, because in Matthew chapter 20, it says that James and John's mother, we'll call her Mrs. Zebedee, that she came to Jesus, and she's basically trying to get Jesus to agree to have James and John sit on either side of her as Jesus, you know, it's this picture of Jesus ruling as a king and having all this power. She's like, yeah, I think, well, James and John, my sons, they ought to be on either side of you and share in the power or share in the ruling of the people. And so Mrs. Zebedee may have been a little power hungry. (laughs) But imagine if you came from, and maybe some of you did, come from a family of brash, driven, high achievers who wanted you to know how big of a deal they were. And so who knows, maybe this is the kind of family that John came from. But then he meets Jesus. He interacts for several years with Jesus, and he enters into God's family. And he realizes that God's family isn't about any of that stuff. Instead, it's about love. It's about a deep love for others. That as part of Jesus' family, John had found a place where he was loved for who he was. He didn't have to try to achieve or promote himself. He could make mistakes and still be loved anyways. He didn't have to earn his status. What Jesus was essentially saying in verse 34 is your next blank. In that verse, he's saying, love one another, everything else is secondary. Everything else is secondary. Love is the most important thing. Now, some of you might say, but but isn't theology, isn't what we believe the most important thing? Belief is important, right? Like if we're going and trying to interact with people and we don't have a good understanding of who God is, then we could steer someone the wrong way, right? But no, Jesus never commanded us to center our lives around theology. It seems to me that Jesus was much more about application than information. 
Ravi Zacharias, who was a great theologian, recently said that God's love is the pinnacle of Christian theology and practice. And I think that's basically what Jesus is saying here, that to love others with God's love is the most important, absolute highest calling we have as followers of Jesus. As individuals and as a church, centering our lives on receiving God's love and giving it away is paramount. It's what Jesus said we should be known for. In fact, in the next verse that we're going to look at in a few minutes, he he basically says that the success of the church, that the success of God's family depends on love. You know, here as we're thinking about what does success mean for us as a church, Sometimes it's easy to think about, oh, success is about making sure we meet our our yearly budget or or that we have the right leadership structure in place or success is having deeper preaching or having an awesome building. But no, Jesus says that love is the barometer upon which our success will be measured. Other places in scripture, you know, it says all these things, well, what if we could speak in the voices of angels or, you know, what if we had these gifts or these skills? It says it would all mean nothing without love. Love is the most important thing. And so what would it take for each of us to live a life that is centered on God's love? As the director of Connecting Ministries, my answer would be that it would take each of us finding some soul friendships in which we can receive God's love and in which we can practice giving God's love back to others in powerful ways. And that's why we encourage you to find a small group that you can be a part of here at Daybreak, to build friendships that are centered on God's love, to find your immediate family in God's extended family here in our church. Those brothers and sisters in Christ who can help you be nourished by God's love and who you can help right back. This is a picture of my current small group at our uh, Christmas party (coughs) last year, and my current group has been together for about 15 months. And in those 15 months, God has sewn us together in some pretty cool and amazing ways. We've learned to trust each other. We've learned to be vulnerable with each other. We just met this past Monday, and people are sharing some pretty heavy stuff that they're dealing with, that they're processing. But the beautiful part is that they're comfortable sharing it. They feel that it's a safe place where they're loved and cared for. We've learned to encourage each other, to implore each other to keep trusting God, even when our circumstances seem to beg the question, like, where is God right now? We've even learned to challenge each other, to ask questions to get us to think differently and deeply, to truly line our lives and our thoughts and our behaviors up with the standard of God's word. It didn't happen all at once. It didn't happen right away. But through the power of structured, intentional relationships, God has taken each one of us to new places in our relationship with him. Each one of us loves each other more. We trust God more. We're living a more surrendered life to God than when we started together. Now, I'm not sure if you're in a group or maybe if you have a few close soul friends who you regularly process life with through the framework of God's love. But if you don't, you're missing it. <laughs> because without those, compa- without those companions, who, who's going to bear your burdens with you? Who's going to encourage you when you're experiencing self-doubt, remind you, right, of the truth when those lies are speaking louder? Who's going to point you towards God's truth in the midst of your confusion? We all need those God-centered relationships that bring out God's best in us, and that won't happen by accident. 
We know this. We know it takes intentionality to enter into those relationships, and it takes effort to love people in a way that brings out God's best in them. Like so many other things in life, though, if we wait until we're desperate for something to pursue it, then we've already waited far too long. For instance, if you don't have batteries for a flashlight before your power goes out, then you won't have batteries in your flashlight when the power goes out, right? If you don't put gas in your tank before it's empty, then you won't have gas in your tank when it's empty, when you need it, right? And it's the same way with relationships centered in God's love, that if you don't have them before you need them, then you won't have them when you need them, when you're feeling stuck spiritually, when you're kind of at a tough place in your marriage, or honestly, pretty much all the time. We all need constant love and support and encouragement. I love our church, and I love how we care for each other in the context of God-centered, life-changing relationships in small groups. And I want you to be able to experience God's love in that way as well by joining a group this fall if you haven't already. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a little bit. But so Jesus says in verse 34 that we should love one another as he has loved us. But he also reminds us in the next verse what will happen when we do, when we live like God's family centered on God's love. He says this in verse 35, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. He says when you truly learn to love as he loves us, you're going to stand out. You're going to attract people to him. It makes people identify you and the way you live as markedly different from the rest of the world. You know, I truly believe, and maybe you've experienced this in your own life as well, that when people see us loving each other in a way that brings healing, when people see us loving and treating each other with with sacrificial, servant-hearted love, they say, I want that too. I want to experience that kind of love, and you loving me that way inspires me to want to learn to love that way as well. In the immortal words of DC Talk, we all want to be loved. We all want just a little respect. We all want to be loved. Tell me what's wrong with that. (laughs) They go on to say, in the way only DC Talk can say it, it's the heavenly prescription A little bit will go a long, long way. Love is a thing that we all crave. Let's get it straight. So what were my good friends, Toby Mack, Kevin Max, and Michael Tate, trying to say in their 1998 hit Christian rap, which those two words together still just, you know, sometimes boggles me, but Christian rap single, want to be loved. What they were saying is that we all have a need for belonging, In fact, the need to belong for most of us translates us to saying things like we are at a Penn State football game, right? Or better yet, when we're watching our favorite NFL team, like the Super Bowl champion Philadelphia Eagles, nice shirt over there, Eric, yes, (laughs) we say things like, yes, we scored, right? I mean, we know that we didn't score. I mean, I wasn't actually on the field. Were you on the field? I mean, I've never actually been in the locker room, although I've seen on Facebook that some of you guys have even recently been in the Eagles locker room, and I'm a little little bit jealous about that. And although I follow a few of the players on Twitter, believe it or not, they they don't actually know me because I'm not on the team. I know it's kind of, it's weird, right? But we say we because we are obsessed with belonging. It's a deep universal need in all of us. 
It doesn't matter a person's view on God, on Christianity. They need to belong just as much as the next guy. And while those who don't know God like we know God might not be able to describe it this way, I think what they all want is to be loved like God loves. And so while your friend might not necessarily come to church because they believe in God, they might come to church because they look at your life and see the impact that belonging to God's family is having in you. They see the love that you extend to them so freely, and they want to experience that for themselves. You know, people come to Daybreak for a variety of reasons, some good and some bad. I remember back when we were in uh, the old building. This is like pre-2005, so I'm starting to get old. But I remember we had this guy on the worship team. He was a college student. His name was Doug, and he played the saxophone. And I remember as I was walking to the stage one Sunday morning, I overheard three college-age girls kind of giggling. And, oh my gosh, I'm so happy that we chose to come to church today because Doug is playing, and he's so hot. And I just kind of was like, gag me, right? (laughs) But the cool thing is, whatever gets us here, God can work in us when we're here, right? And so people come to church for a variety of reasons. But you know why they stay? They stay because of love. Let's be honest, we're not the smartest church in town. (laughs) We're not the fanciest church in town. We're not the biggest or the brightest church in town. We're not the coolest or the hippest church in town either. But we strive to be a place people recognize as the most loving church in town. Because we're God's family and God is a God of love. And so we do our best to be centered on God's love in how we treat each other. We have a deep love for our community, and that's why we run these community impact ministries throughout the year. We have a deep love for our world, and so we send short-term teams every year to go partner with our international workers. We have a deep love for each other, and so we care for each other, and we meet each other's needs, and we pray for each other and encourage each other. And we have an undying love for God. And we're not perfect. We never will be. But we keep striving to more and more look like Jesus in the way that we love. This is how we help people discover and deepen a life-changing journey with Jesus. Earlier this month, we received a letter from a 20-something-year-old gal that illustrates just how well you all are living out the generous giving of God's love to others. And I wanted to read you part of it just to encourage you this morning and to show you that God is doing a good work in and through you. The letter says, Dear Pastor Sean and the rest of the Daybreak community, I just wanted to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Your kindness and love for someone you had never met before, it doesn't go underappreciated. I'm so grateful from the bottom of my heart. This has pretty much been the craziest, but most certainly now the best year of my life. She references a specific family at daybreak. She says, they're pretty much the best people I know. They've really showed me what unconditional love and care feels like. It's going to be in my head for the rest of my life on how I can pay it forward. You all have shown me such love through Christ's image. The message of peace and love for God in your service makes me feel so calm and full of love. So thank you for that. You have an incredible church and I can really feel the good energy coming from there. Thank you so much for believing in me. 
Nothing like this has ever happened to me in my entire life. And this family, along with Daybreak's extended family, helped to care for her, to meet some needs, a real practical need for her in a time where she needed it most. She said, I owe so much to the kindness of others, and your community is a huge part of that, so thank you again. I love to be around like-minded, peaceful, God-loving people. You all are amazing, and I wish I could put it into words better, but I want you to understand how much love I have in my heart for all of you. She goes on to say, if we continue to live in Christ's image, I think everything will be just fine. I get these signs from God that I'm on the right path when I interact with all of you. And I really think if you put all your trust into him, he will show you that everything will play out as it should. Thank you again for the love and support. I hope you all understand how grateful I feel. I'm still sort of speechless. Thank you for being such good people I was blessed to cross paths with in this life. I can't wait to come back and see you again. Keep spreading the lovely messages from God. You're all really, you all really positively affect people, and it means the world. Thank you. Now, this is a gal who didn't have a strong faith background. This was a gal who wasn't going to church. <laughs> and she had a need. And someone that knew her who attended Daybreak helped to meet her need helped her to be able to feel in a very tangible way God's love. And you see, even just in the short time that she's been interacting with the Daybreak family, she's now been inspired to give that love away to others as well. Hers is a life that was changed. She's discovered a life-changing journey with Jesus. And it wasn't because someone came and debated faith or tried to strong-arm her into a relationship with him. It's because she was loved and cared into a relationship with him. But how do we learn to love in this way? Maybe you're like John. Maybe you grew up in an imperfect family that didn't always do a great job of loving each other. Maybe your parents split up or there was a lot of fighting or, or love was conditional. So how do we become the kind of family that Jesus envisioned? God's family centered on God's love when it's never been modeled for us. Well, what we have to realize is that it actually was modeled for us, and that's your last blank, that if you don't know how to love, watch how Jesus loved. If you don't know how to love, watch how Jesus loved. When Jesus gives this commandment to love as he had loved, this wasn't just something that he was saying. This is something that he had lived out. You know, I don't think it was possible to be in Jesus' presence and to not be overwhelmed by his love. I mean, Jesus said some pretty challenging things, some really hard things to some people, yet they kept returning. Why? The only answer that I can come up with is that they felt love and hope and freedom in Jesus' presence. I mean, if you think about it, there's story after story, right? The woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery, the religious leaders focused more on rules than love, Peter who denied him, Zacchaeus the tax collector who was skimming off the top, and we're going to talk about his story next week as we look at our last core value. Person after person, Jesus addresses them, he meets them in their sin, and he calls them up to God's best for them. Yet he does it with so much grace and so much love. They walk away feeling like Jesus cares way more about their soul than he does about their sin. This past fall, our home groups walked through the book Love One Another by Jerry Sitzer. And Jerry's a man who had lost his wife, his mother, and one of his daughters in one tragic 
automobile accident. And about 10 years later, he wrote this book after another almost fatal accident for another one of his daughters. She was out swimming in a lake and was hit by a boat. And in both of these instances, he witnessed the church rally around him and his family and show love in such unbelievable ways. And so he challenges us to do the same. He says, the church is called to function as a body, as if it were a kind of incarnation, a living representation of Christ in the world. Just as Christ was the incarnation of God in the world, the church is the incarnation of Christ. He reminds us that we change the world because of Christ in us. We change the world when we realize that we are the family of God, characterized by God's love, called to make love our most important goal, learning from the way that Jesus loved us. And when the church is a living and breathing representation of Jesus, the world can experience God's love in a fresh, brand new, entire existence-changing kind of way. The church should be the most loving place on the planet. As God's family centered on God's love, we want Daybreak to be known as the most loving place in our community, not for our own reputation, but so that more and more people, like the gal that wrote this letter, can experience the love of God that changes everything. So that people can discover and deepen a life-changing journey with Jesus. Listen, the reason I give my life to the work of this church is because I have been changed by the love that has been extended to me here. If someone would ask me to document all of it, it would take me months to write it down. (laughs) From being continually invited to my first small group when I was depressed and living a life of isolation, to being welcomed but not judged when I finally started attending that group to being continually affirmed for the spiritual gifts that God has given me, to say that you using your gifts is making an impact in my life, to being challenged and called out at times by leaders that I respect, to being cared for and prayed for by so many of you. I've been well-loved by this church family, but it didn't happen by accident. I experienced life change because I chose to join a group because I chose to build relationships, because I chose to do life with others who would speak God's truth to me. Those loving environments and relationships inspired me and they continue to inspire me to work towards God's best for my life. They challenge me to live out that vision, to be part of God's family and to be centered on God's love. And we want you to experience God's love that way at daybreak, and we want you to be part of giving that love away at daybreak as well. I don't know how it is for you, but sometimes for me, hearing God's truth through a song, through music, seals it in my soul and challenges me in a little bit of a different way than hearing it through the spoken word. And so I want to give an opportunity for that to happen for you right now. I heard this song last summer, summer of 2017, for the first time, and I was challenged and just captivated by the picture that it paints of loving like God loves. And as we were heading into the series last fall called Love One Another, it was just the perfect song for the perfect message at the perfect time, and I hope that maybe something in it hits you in that way today, something that you need to hear with where you are in your life right now. So listen in to this song. Be challenged by the song for the one. Let me be filled 
kindness and compassion for the one. The one for whom you loved and gave your son for humanity. Increase my
God, would you teach us how to love like you love us? Would you give us your heart for people? Heart that isn't focused on the lines, isn't focused on the differences between us, but is focused on the truth. And that's that every single one of us deeply matters to you. That you love us with an amazing, overwhelming love. God, may we focus our energies on finding relationships where we can receive your incredible love and continue to learn what it looks like to give it away to others. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.